Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks as always for a beautiful morning and for a chance to gather with the brothers and sisters we have in the Lord here at Wayside. Thank you, Father, for the, ta- uh, the chance to open up your letter to Colossian, to the Colossian Church and the opportunity, Father, to learn as you've taught them in the same way. Father, we ask that uh, the words today on the page before us uh, be living and active and in our hearts, Father, to do the work you've intended. I pray that our minds would be uh, dedicated to the purpose Our hearts would be open to the message, and uh, our hands and feet, Father, would be motivated to put it into action in our lives. And we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Colossians chapter 3, 12 is about where we left off. I I try to put a little bit of a recap and transition into every week so that we can follow the flow. Cutting back into it at a point where we left off is difficult if we don't bring it together with where we were going prior. So let me just reread a couple of verses and then we'll take a, a moment to introduce where we've come from and where we're going. Colossians 3:12 and 13 will be the two I start with today. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, we read those at the end of last week, but we never really touched on them. They give me an opportunity, as I said, to stitch together the message from last week into this week. Uh, What Paul had been doing, if you remember, coming into chapter 3 from chapter 2, was moving away from a discussion of what we shouldn't be doing and into a discussion of what we should be doing. And this list of do's and don'ts came as a result of false teaching that had levied onto the church its own set of do's and don'ts but the wrong set, things that were based in works, things that were based in an attempt to make oneself holy out of an action, like not eating a certain food or observing a certain festival. Paul corrected all that in chapter 2 and said, we are all one in Christ, we are all slave and free men and Greek and Jew, and then none of these things that you have made an emphasis truly matter, because now we have liberty in Christ, those things are are not essential. Now in chapter 3, he's moved into a discussion that's directed back to the church to say, well, if you're interested in what you should be doing, if the idea of activity is on your mind, well, let me help you with what you should be doing. And he moved out of what the church had been taught from these false teachers into true Christian doctrine and teaching with respect to how we live our lives, with respect to what a Christian walk looks like. And he had begun, if you remember, with a lot of the don'ts, put away malice, put away hatred, put away slanderous speech, put away all kinds of lusts. He had said, yeah, if you don't want, if you want to stop doing things, here's what you should stop doing. Rather than stopping eating, stopping, stop doing these things. And then in response to that, he now moves into the positive message in chapter 3. Here's what you should be doing as a Christian. And that's about where we left off, right in the middle of that list of the do's of what a Christian should be doing. And we just read a few more of them here in chapter 3, verse 12. Paul reminds them, first in, in chapter 3, verse 12, of who they are. And I said a little bit of this last week. Who you think you are affects how you behave. Who you think you are affects how you behave. You are, according to Paul, a child of the king. You are chosen by God. He looked down the corridors of time and brought you to mind and brought you into the family of God. He set you apart for great things. So, The simple question on Paul's mind back to the church is, if the God of the universe did that for you, then what are you doing in response? You know, it's it's often the case that our our gratitude is most obvious when we feel the most unworthy. 
I don't know if that's true in your life, but I know in my life, if I receive something that I truly don't deserve, my gratitude is magnified as, a, as compared to the moments when I get something I feel I earned. You know, that's, that was the right result for me, given what I've done. Then I just feel satisfied. But when it's not deserved, I feel gratitude. I feel thankfulness. I feel awed at the prospect of receiving something I didn't deserve. He is beginning, verse 12, with that, with that mindset. You who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved... In response to that, what are you to do? He says, basically, act accordingly. And here's the list. Compassion. I just want to do what I did in the prior list of the don'ts. Let me explain to you what the Greek word behind each of these in its most literal sense means. Compassion, and and it's a compound Greek word that really just means showing sensitivity to those in suffering. Showing sensitivity to those in need. You know, we often hear in the Christian walk about the fact that we should be generous, we should be concerned about the poor, concerned about those who are less fortunate. This is a function of our walk as the child of the king. We should have compassion. Kindness means manifesting itself as a sweet disposition, thoughtful in our interpersonal dealings. So kindness is not simply being nice to someone. It moves to a step of action and it says, I'm going to be thoughtful in some respect about somebody's need. I'm going to take an action Toward, toward doing something for someone. That's kindness in the sense of the Greek word. Humility means having a realistic view of oneself. Thinking lowly of ourselves because we are so, but on the other hand, not presenting it as false humility. Humility is a true res- uh, understanding of self, not a false view of self. There are many who would ingratiate themselves to others by pretending to, be hum- uh, to have a humble attitude about themselves, but in reality they don't. That's not true humility. Gentleness just means not having uh, a harsh or arrogant or self-assertive attitude, but rather being considerate of others. That's pretty obvious. And patience is the quality of being long-suffering and self-restraining. And then he says, here's what patience really looks like in the Christian walk. Forbearing and forgiving. Forbearing means putting up with somebody else, to put it simply. Putting up with them. Enduring them but not doing it with a mindset or with an attitude of, look how much I'm putting up with. Truly putting up with somebody means they can't tell you're having to put up with them. So practice that in a marriage, and you'll probably be pretty good at it in any other context. Forgiving involves not holding a grudge or a grievance. Now, he's given this list, and I I know most of those words were probably obvious, even in the way I defined them. And again, here's a list that if you breeze past it, it almost seems so obvious as to have no instructional value. Unless, of course, you stop long enough to ask yourself, am I doing these things in the way Paul is expecting them to be done? Does my life mirror this list? And, of course, none of us could say yes with perfection, I know. But many of us could say yes to more than others. So it's it's not an irrelevant point to ask the question, how are you doing? Just because I can't be perfect doesn't mean I can't make an assessment of myself about where my weaknesses are or about whether I'm truly even giving an effort at some of these things in my walk. Whether I view... My position before God as a child of the king, as a chosen one of God, to have any bearing on how I behave, whether that means anything to me or not, whether I really care how I represent my Christ, you know, the ambassador that we are to Christ, uh, for Christ in the world, how do I represent that role in the world? Do I even care that I'm exhibiting these traits or not? That, That might be a first question we all ask. Then Paul says at the very end, he says in verse 14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love, in the sense of how he means it here, is agape. And we're going to spend a minute talking about that because he uses this now as sort of a crown to what has been discussed up to this point. It is the expectation 
that Paul has in, inherent in all these characteristics that they roll up into an attitude of agape love, which is a unique form of love. The world's form of love is not agape love. Absent the Holy Spirit, it is impossible to show agape love. It, it's possible to fake it or to have behaviors that look the same, but at its root, it's a heart attitude. At its root, agape love is about what, what's going on inside, not necessarily how you're exhibiting it outside. And it is a kind of love that is not possible absent the love of God in us. That's the meaning of that word, of agape love. It's an expectation that we would love in the same manner God loved us. So if you want a kind of an operational definition of what agape love, of how all of these things are represented by the word love, agape, consider that last line and you get the best picture possible. The way God forgave you would be the way you extend forgiveness to the world. And in the way you extend forgiveness to the world, you're demonstrating God's love in its clearest form, in its simplest form. The world forgives conditionally. Generally speaking, forgiveness is a conditional uh, response. We forgive those who forgive us. Uh, we forgive those who earn our forgiveness. Or we forgive those who deserve our forgiveness. We put a condition, generally, on how we extend forgiveness to others. Forgiveness is a special, valuable commodity. I only have so much to go around, and I don't just toss it out casually. You know, I don't just forgive unless it's merited, because I'm not going to just forgive everybody. So I'm looking for the right place and the right time to extend my forgiveness. That's the natural state of man, apart from God's love in us. So if you hurt me, or if you offend me in any way, or if, uh, and if you do it too many times then I have the right, I feel, to limit or even withdraw my forgiveness. Because after all, I've forgiven you already for this four times. So now you're asking me to forgive you a fifth time, and I'm sorry I've run, I've run out of forgiveness on, on this issue or for you particularly. That's how we use forgiveness in our lives when we're not living an agape-focused kind of love for other people, when it's conditional. If we forgave like the Lord forgave, though, how would forgiveness take place? Well, first, he forgave us even before we stopped offending him. So put yourself in the case of someone being offended, somebody who's offending you. You're not going to forgive them until they at least stop, right? The first requirement is you, you kind of stop doing what you're doing, and then we can talk about forgiveness. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. You know, he makes the point in those three verses so clearly. When God was taking action to forgive us through the death of his son, he was doing so for people who were yet still in that moment an enemy of God and trying to thwart God's plan, trying to attack God any way they could in their own personal lives. He looked past that moment and began the forgiveness process even before they were ready to receive it. So if we we're to forgive like God forgave, if, if that's a good example of agape love at work in our lives, then even while the offense is ongoing, our forgiveness needs to begin. Second thing, God forgave those who were undeserving. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, For Christ, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. So God's forgiveness was extended in the form of his perfect just son dying for you and I, the unjust, those who did not deserve what he was prepared to do for us. So do we then extend forgiveness to those who truly uh, deserve anger instead of forgiveness? Are we ready to do that? 
to that person who is still offending us, and you know that they are wrong and deserve somebody you know, punishing them or calling them out in some way. Do we look past that, like God did to us, and begin to extend forgiveness despite that? And then finally, do we demand performance? Do we demand something from them conditionally as a result of us being willing to extend forgiveness? Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9 that Jesus has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Jesus Christ from all eternity. So from the beginnings of time, God looked down the corridors of time and made, made a choice to extend grace to those he will, and never according to the work of that individual. Not a work prior, not a work during grace, not a work post-grace, not a work period, so that no man may boast. That's the nature of grace, unmerited favor. So now, that's the hardest of the three, if you ask me. I, I can well up in me enough desire to forgive that I can look past the momentary offense. And I can do it for the person that you know, I don't believe deserves it generally. But will you do it for the person who's not even grateful for it? Who's not even willing to change their behavior? Who will continually do what they're doing indefinitely? Who's made no promise of whether they're going to change? Who may not recognize that they've offended you and isn't willing to admit it? The neighbor who just won't stop parking on your side of the driveway, or you know, the the, the child that that, that uh, keeps throwing something at your house in in the middle of the night. I mean, it doesn't matter the situation, of course. But are you willing to extend forgiveness in a true, heartfelt sense, not just in a fake attempt at it? When all of those conditions exist, that's agape love. That's what God did for us. So when Paul says, if you want to walk and do things that mirror your Christian belief, well, don't worry about what you eat. Don't worry about what you drink. How about you try this? You know, if you really want to work on things that matter, try agape forgiveness, as, the, as he said, the way God forgave you, forgive others. Then he culminates, Paul moves on from there to culminate his description of this Christian formula. I keep using that term somewhat sarcastically because he's contending with false teachers that brought their own formula. And so he's contending with that, saying, if you want a formula, let me give it to you, peace, love, you know, compassion. And now he's going to kind of complete that picture a little bit. In chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, he says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which we just talked about, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, and, uh, with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Colossians 3:16 and 17 is sort of our touchstone verses for the ministry. We believe in a, in a way it just wraps up the whole purpose of the church in general, of what men and women are called to do in their walk as Christians. But going not, not to dwell on that, let's look at the whole passage. He continues, as I mentioned in this instruction, on defining a Christian lifestyle. And there are five uh, imperatives or five commands in the verses we just read. So, if what he's been talking about up to now are traits of a Christian walk, these are the actions that put those traits into, into practice or bring those traits out in your life. So, if you're asking, how do I do these things? What is the next thing I should do when I leave this room? Here are the five imperatives. Put on this love because it is the perfect bond of unity. It's a really interesting phrase in the Greek. What he's saying in literal terms is, love brings the group to perfection. That's what the word means in Greek. Most literally, it's saying... When the group is expressing love, it brings the group to perfection. The thought here is that the love of God is most clearly understood and it's most 
obviously experienced in a group setting. One individual cannot display the love of God completely. One person by themselves is incapable of demonstrating God's love in its fullness. Why? Because his fullness, his love in his full, in fullness is best demonstrated in how we treat one another. Uh, it's someone to forgive. Someone to have compassion on. Someone to have mercy on. Someone to extend grace to. Someone to have kindness toward. Yes, I can do those things in my heart individually, but it's most clearly demonstrated in a group setting. And to the extent more of that group is acting that way, the group, which we would call the body of Christ, is the most clear representation of what God's love looks like in, in action, in purpose. So he's saying, if all of you were to put on this love that is epitomized by all these characteristics, you would be the closest thing possible to a walk with the Lord. You would be the most representative of him in your daily walk. So it's a good thing to work individually, but it also argues for the need to be working corporately as well. That even though I can do a lot on my own, if I don't engage in a group and then bring them with me, or we all go together, in other words, we're still missing something. That's one of the values, one of the benefits of the body of Christ gathered. Uh, that was the uh, first imperative, putting on love in a group setting. Second imperative is, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, he frequently talks about peace. If you've read a lot of his letters, you know he often ends with a, uh, a benediction or a greeting at the end that talks about peace, peace be with you, or something to that extent. This word he's using in the Greek echoes the Jewish word shalom. So he's really thinking the same thought that Jews used to think when they would say the word shalom, which literally means peace, but it means more than just peace. It's not a perfect translation. You said the word shalom to say more than just peace. It was more of a well-being, contentment, that things in your life would go well, not in just the sense of more money, more things, more everything, in more of a sense of contentment, that you would have a contented, peaceful life. That's what shalom really means at its core. So he's talking here about well-being and contentment because Christ is ruling in your heart. And this was a command to the church, not simply to the individual. And that's an important distinction because the church itself should not be ruled by the personal ambitions of the individuals in that church. That being you and I, obviously. It should be the case that the church does not have material desires, that it does not have a selfish nature about it or a selfish conscience about it. It should have this peace which is meant to be contentment, well-being in what God has provided. And that should just permeate the church because Christ is ruling in our hearts. And then at the end of verse 15, which is also repeated, by the way, in verses 16 and 17, he says, be thankful. So thankfulness is the third imperative. First imperative is this unity, found in love. Second imperative would be to have contentment, to have peace, and, and to be well satisfied with what God has provided. Third, now, is to be thankful. You cannot be at peace in the sense of the word that I've already defined, contented, in other words. You cannot be at peace unless you are constantly reminding yourself of all that God has already given you. It's the way we may treat our children at prayer time. Start a prayer with thankful thoughts. Thank the Lord. Well, I don't have anything to be thankful for today. Well, then let me talk to you about that for a minute. Let me explain to you what you have, things to, what you have to be thankful about. And our children don't ask that question very often. I'm grateful for that. But there's a, there's a tendency, right, to sort of think about your life in a mundane way. And nothing special happened today. I have nothing to be thankful about. And reality is that it's only a matter of a few minutes of thought given to what you have before you recognize what, you, what situation you could have been in rather than what you find yourself in. And in that difference, thankfulness just is a natural quality. But you see how peace and contentment fit with thankfulness. 
If you're wanting something you don't have, it's hard to be thankful for what you do have. If you think that your lot in life is somehow less than it should be, then you have a hard time being thankful. But reverse that equation. If you realize you're a sinner who was saved by grace, who has no reason to deserve what God has given, who should be judged and condemned over your sin, who should be you know, destitute and without provision, who had not, no, no reason to deserve anything God has given, and then look at what you have, now thankfulness is the natural result. You, you won't meet many people you enjoy being around more than people who are content and thankful. If that is their daily constitution and all that comes out of their mouth and all that they see around them, those people just make you feel great. I don't know if that's your experience, but it is mine. You know, it doesn't matter what happens, they're grateful. It doesn't matter what you do for them or what you say, they're pleased and thankful and contented over it. It doesn't matter what's going on around them, they find good in it. They find a reason to be praising the Lord over it. Those people just make everybody feel better. Imagine a bond of unity now, love being that bond of unity. Imagine that being permeating through an entire church congregation where everyone who gathered had that attitude and brought it with them. Would you ever want to go home? You know, that's what the church is supposed to represent. And it doesn't come because we wish it. It has to be on an individual basis, a desire to put on the new self, to be different than I was before I knew Christ. Then in verses 16 and 17, as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of our touchstone verses for the ministry, probably the most concise statement of how the corporate Christian life should be carried out. The, the fourth imperative. The word of Christ is to dwell in every Christian. This is the only use of the term Logos Christos, word of Christ, Logos Christos. The only, ver, only time this appears in the entire New Testament. Though we hear in other places of the word of God or Christ's word or the word of Christ, but in the way it's expressed here in the actual Greek words, completely unique. Completely singular. So what's different here is we're not talking about the Word of God as Paul describes it in, for example, Romans 10:17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. That's a different phrase in the Greek. That's a reference to how salvation arrives. The Word of Christ being a picture or a term used to describe that coming upon the individual of a knowledge of God, of the knowledge of Christ, of a belief of Christ and of us an acceptance of salvation. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 10:17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, by God's power in us to bring us to the knowledge of him and to bring us to salvation. That's not what he's talking about here. So he's not saying, let salvation richly dwell in you. That's not the issue. The words he's using here tell us more about God's word in the literal sense of Christ's instructions, of the recorded teachings of Christ from the New Testament. So in that sense, he's saying, take what Jesus taught to his disciples, and then by extension to us today, let that dwell in you. Now, the word dwell here reminds us of the difference between the owner of a house and the visitor to a house. You know, if someone passes through your home, they're only a visitor, right? And no one's going to mistake them for the owner or for the master of the home, right? Unless they show up with their suitcases and everything else, right? They're just seen as a visitor automatically, because why? They don't stay very long, hopefully. But the one who sets up residence in a home, who never leaves, they are clearly the master of that house, and they rule that house. That's the distinction. Likewise, if the Word of God is given its proper place in our hearts, it is a constant presence in our daily walk, in our daily life, and therefore it's master over that home. Versus the person for whom the Word of God is something like the dictionary. That's the reference I always use. So, you know, a dictionary sits on our shelf. And when we have a question about a word, we pull it down, we open it up, you know, okay, there's the answer, don't need it anymore, put it back. All right, that's not dwelling richly in the home, that's a visitor. Comes in when you need them, goes away when you don't, or when you think you don't. 
The one who is the master of the home is the one that's center place in your life at all times. And in other words, you're reading it even when you don't have a question. You're studying it even when you don't have some problem you're trying to solve. You're in it because it is Christ in, its, in a physical way that you can spend time in, spend time with, in a relationship with, basically, learning from. And then when those issues arise where the Word of God can be present in your life to bring instruction or to bring correction, it doesn't have to come off the shelf because it's already right here. You know, God will bring it to mind so that it will be useful in the moment. But He can't draw it up from nothing. I mean, well, He could, but His tendency is not to do that. His tendency is to leave you absent that, that instruction so that you might see the error of your ways. But it's always been available to us, right? It's always there. We just may not be using it in the right way. So Bible study shouldn't be an event. It should be a part of your life. Studying the Word should not be an item on your calendar. It should be like breathing and eating. And that's the sense of it here. Dwelling richly. Dwelling in a rich way in your life. He clarifies it's to be used for teaching. It's been used to admonishing. It's just a clarification on how it's to be used. It's useful to build up in the new knowledge but it's also use, useful to tear down the bad knowledge, to correct those things in our mind that are not correct. So we use it in both ways. Paul sums it up in that last verse. He says, whatever you do, do in the name of Christ or in the name of Jesus. This is an important concept all by itself. In the Eastern way of thinking, the person's nature and their character were embodied by their name. So the name spoke to the person. The name was a perfect representation of the person. So, if I spoke or did something in the name of Christ, I'm invoking his nature and his character and his authority. That's the point of saying it that way. You know, it's not this what would Jesus do kind of concept. It's much deeper than that. It's talking about it as if those of us who are his ambassador are acting in his place and we're carrying his reputation with us. So that if we do the wrong thing, if we say the wrong thing, if we're not living in an agape love style of life, but rather we're resting on something else in our own nature... We're still representing him. We're just doing it badly. We're just harming his reputation. So he's saying, do all that you do recognizing who you represent. That's the sense of it. Carry that weight on your shoulder to help you, you know, make the right choices. To those who put on agape love and peace and contentment with the life God has given and exercise thankfulness in all things and then allow God's word to set up residence in their heart, that person is walking in a way that reflects glory upon the name of Christ. So that's your fifth imperative, to do all these things with an awareness that what you're doing in the moment is as a representative of Christ. When you're filling out your taxes, you're representing Christ. When you're talking to your boss about why you didn't get an assignment finished on time, you're representing Christ. When you're speaking to your wife or to your husband, you're representing Christ. Are your words and are your actions a fair representation of his nature as they should be, or are they merely your nature? My nature. That's the question. You know, if that thought was on our minds constantly, which I understand that what would Jesus do thing was really about trying to bring that mindset to individuals, and I I think that's good. This is the fullness of it, though. This is the full sense of it. You are Christ in that moment. How do you represent him? Now, how does that compare? Just as we move beyond it, just take a moment and contrast that with what we know the false teachers were given that same church. The false teachers wanted that congregation to focus on the here and the now. Remember? Going back to earlier things we taught at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul got on the church about the fact that they were so focused on food and drink, things that he said are passing away. And yet that's your concern? These false teachers wanted to focus on the temporal, the earthly. They had to perform works to please God. They couldn't be content 
or at peace because they had to worry at all times about whether what they were doing was pleasing God or not. They led a, that would obviously lead to a life of discontentment, to a life of worry. That was the natural product of this kind of false teaching. So you had a, a group of people now that were stirred up around things that were temporal, that didn't matter, and as a result of that stirring up, were constantly discontented and worrying about whether or not what they were doing was pleasing God. And now they established rules for one another. You had to have certain festivals, certain Sabbaths, certain dietary restrictions. What does that lead to? Well, if I have rules that I think matter and I broadly apply them in a group, now what do I need? I need enforcers. I need policemen. I need someone to go around and check on how everyone's living their life. I need to be judgmental. I need to start making assessments of what other people are doing. That leads, obviously, to disunity and to an unwillingness to accept one another and perhaps even an unwillingness to gather with one another. I mean, you can see it devolve over, dissolve over time as those things take place in a body. That was the fruit of all the teaching that had been going on in that church or at any time when you see that kind of teaching taking place. And all of that was made possible because of a lack of an appreciation of God's Word, a lack of knowledge about the truth of what God's Word taught on those very same issues, and ultimately a lack of love and thankfulness, a lack of appreciation for what God had already done but rather instead a thought of what they had to do to earn it. And that reduced their thankfulness and their love for one another. Now Paul's taught the opposite things to all of those points. And what a liberating message that would have been to this group. And just to make sure that they understand how this liberty in Christ is going to look in their day-to-day -day walk, he does something, I think, very interesting here in chapter 3, 18 through 25. He gives some very specific examples. These are not all-inclusive these are not the sum total of what he expects. These are just representative. Look at some of the examples he gives of what it would look like to walk that Christian walk. Verses 18 and on, he says, Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not embitter, be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, so they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, Grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. I just added verse 1 because it's really the same thought continued. So look at those examples. Now, I could, or anyone could for that matter, probably preach a Sunday on every single one of those. All right? So obviously for the time we have, we're not going to try to do that. We're going to cover them lightly. But I would encourage you that if you had an interest in what it means as a wife or as a husband or as a master in the sense of a boss in today's context, right? It wouldn't be slavery. It would be, well, some people might think of it as slavery, but it's work, all right? But in every context of your life where you fit into this pattern somewhere, as a child, as a parent, as a husband, as a wife, you have plenty of opportunity to study in other letters that Paul's written what these Christian characteristics look like lived out in that role. Paul just mentions them in passing here. So we'll mention them in passing as well. Every group Paul mentions here is called to be similarly self-sacrificial. Denying of self. Denying of the self's interests and the elevating of the other's interest. And to be loving and content and loving in light of their circumstances. In other words, you can't say because I'm a slave I don't have to be loving. 
Because I'm a wife of a bad husband, I don't have to be loving. Now, in light, regardless of the circumstances, your role brings with it self-sacrificial love and an expectation of a Christian walk. Therefore, no one is any more or less obligated in the Christian walk to show this kind of outward love and consideration for others. But their individual circumstances will dictate how they exhibit it. What kinds of things exhibit that Christian love? All right, so clearly what situation you're in will have an influence on what you do, but the, the heart behind it is the same in all cases. So look at them individually. A wife. A wife, we are told, demonstrates her Christian walk most clearly when she submits to the authority of her husband. Now, this is obviously a point of contention in many places today. I read something recently where, where Huckabee, the presidential candidate, has been called out in the press because in a prior life as a pastor in the Baptist denomination, he signed one of the Southern Baptist Convention resolutions. And in the resolution was, wives, submit to your husband, which echoed, of course, Ephesians and, and Colossians 3. But now, that, of course, that's a big brouhaha because who would dare to expect a wife to submit to their husband in today's world, right? Well, what Paul is suggesting here is not that the wife submit to the husband because the wife, in some sense, is less of a role, plays less of a role in the marriage Paul is saying that God's ordained role for headship in the home was to the man, so the right response for a woman to God's choice in that matter is to submit to her husband. Likewise, the reverse of that is true. A husband who follows this principle of agape love is going to show that Christian walk by loving the wife, and the love here, the same word for love here again, agape, so it's a sense of self-sacrificial love back to the woman in the way Christ loved the church, to use the example out of Ephesians. How did Christ love the church? He gave up everything for her. He kept nothing for himself. He put himself not in a position of honor. He held nothing back. Everything was done. Everything was sacrificed for the sake of the, of the bride of Christ, which is the church. And by the way, the teaching out of Ephesians is not that the husband demands submission. The teaching out of, of Ephesians is the woman gives submission. But it stands to reason that if the woman is not giving it, the husband can't demand it. To, to even have to ask for it is evidence that it's not being given. And as a result, you can't make something happen in reverse. It's going to remain the case that until the woman decides to be submissive, there's no submissiveness. And it's going to be the case that if a husband tries to demand submiss submissiveness, he's not doing as Christ did, which is to give nothing, no regard for his own desires, but rather give all regard for the woman's desires. Do you notice it's not conditional? He doesn't say, women, submit to your husbands when they're doing the right thing. He doesn't say to the husband, love your wife only when she's being submissive. The there is no condition on those. If you saw a marriage where the husband treated the woman like Christ treated the church, and likewise, the woman submitted to the man's authority where there was a disagreement. What kind of marriage would that be? Where everyone's tripping over each other to be kind and, and deferential. Where everybody's doing their best to make the other one happy. It'd be a wonderful marriage, wouldn't it? Finally, children, or next point, children, they show their Christian walk by obedience. Now, that's obvious to a parent. Nah, not so obvious to kids at times. But likewise, the father, it's, we're, we're told here, and I think this stands for both the mother and the father as a parent, in other words, Father shows their Christian walk by not making their, the child's obedience a weight around their necks, which is, I think, the sense of the term here, where obedience is met with harshness or unfairness or indifference. No matter how much you obey, I have more demands. No matter how much you try to please me, I'm not pleased by how well you've tried. You know, there's a sense here that I'm not, I'm not giving the child any kind of gratitude or any kind of encouragement along the way. There is an important corollary here to parenting, if you want to know what a Christian walk in parenting looks like. A parent who does not expect obedience and respect from their children is dishonoring the Lord through their children. 
by how you raise your children, children, if you're not placing on them an expectation of obedience for the Lord's sake, then by proxy you're dishonoring the Lord by raising children who don't show respect, who don't show obedience. But the conditional requirement or the, the expectation from Paul is that you would not achieve it in ways that compromise your own walk. So your walk as a parent is to do it in an encouraging and a loving and, and, and a hopefully word-driven way, but you've got to do it. To let children have free reign to do as they please is dishonoring to the Lord. They must be taught what obedience looks like. That's, a, that's what it means to be a parent. That's one of the requirements. Interesting ones on slaves and masters. I won't belabor it, but it is interesting because culturally that's so different from our day today. To slaves, Paul says, serve your master out of a sincere desire to please the Lord rather than simply because you have no choice. Rather than simply because you're a slave and you've got a master and I've got to do what he tells me to do. No, 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 don't see it that way. Serve the Lord, so give it your whole heart. That would tell me that even a slave can present a witness to their faith in the midst of their circumstances by showing love and patience and contentment. So where does that leave us? I mean, if we're not a slave today, but even a slave can show that kind of Christian walk, where, is, where can we claim some kind of limit? Where can we say, well, you know, I can show my Christian walk except at work because they just don't want anyone to talk about their Christian life. It's just absolutely off limits. I'd be fired in a second. All right, but I don't know that Paul is necessarily talking here about what you say with respect to your faith, as much as he's talking about how you live. And I've seen more than a few conversations opened up to the Lord from people whose lives were so markedly different from the world in these areas that it drew questions out of people about what was different about this person, why they were like that, why they, wouldn't, why they would forgive others even before that person was you know, asking for forgiveness or worthy of forgiveness, why they would work so hard for a bad boss. Why they would give it their all to a company that treats them like dirt. You know, conversations that start in the secular and the normal every day and lead to a conversation about your life and what you think and what you believe. I don't think it's that hard to see that happen anywhere, frankly. Even a slave can do it. Then Paul sums up the examples. He says, we don't do what we do because of someone else. The praises of men are not what a Christian seeks. When we make decisions about what we do based on what men will say, we inevitably make bad choices. Inevitably. We will make choices depending on how it's received by others. Or we will intentionally do the wrong thing because we don't feel the other person deserves the right thing. So it works both ways. We will peddle ourselves in ways that are dishonest or, or insincere to gain someone's favor. That's deception. Being who you're not so that you can make your boss happy or somebody else happy. That's deception. On the other hand, we may withhold doing the right thing because they don't deserve it because they've offended me or because of something about them, I don't feel like they deserve the help or I don't think they deserve my best effort. But when he says you work for the Lord instead of for men, then your decision is going to be based on what the Lord expects, not on the res with respect to your relationship with some human being. It'll be based on his holiness. It'll be based on his worth, meaning that person may not deserve my best, but the Lord always does. That person may not deserve me doing something nice because they've been mean to me, but the reverse is true with the Lord, so I, d I owe him everything. That person's reputation I couldn't care less about, but Christ I care everything about. You know, if you put him in the driver's seat for why you're doing what you're doing, it completely changes your perspective on what you should do. And then he says, don't worry about the reward. And that's got to cut probably to the heart of what a lot of people do in their life. What I do is based on what I get. And what he's saying is, your reward is eternal. Go back to what he said at the beginning of chapter 3. Don't focus on the here and now, things that are going to burn up. The eternal reward is the one you care about anyway. 
That's the one you're working for. If doing the right thing at work means you get fired, don't worry about it. I mean, if that were somebody's situation. Or maybe not fired, maybe you just don't get the promotion. Because you're not willing to play the games the way the other sales agents play the games, right? Maybe you won't get promoted. It's not like everything here is guaranteed to work out perfectly. <laughs> you know, things may not go well. You may not make as much money. Your kids may have to sacrifice the, 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 the video game because you didn't get the bonus that everyone else got. I mean, I'm not saying life is a panacea because you follow the Lord. It's clearly the case that often you'll be persecuted for that. He's saying, don't worry about it. Because when you start worrying about that stuff, you're worrying about what men think. Because men's rewards. And now you're going to start doing the wrong thing. You worry about what your eternal reward is, that will be in, in place in a permanent, eternal way on the, on the appointed day, and you will see your reward. And then on the flip side of that, he says, don't worry about those who deserve some kind of punishment. I like to put it this way. God's got your back. You don't have to worry about your reward. Likewise, you don't have to worry about these people who may not be getting what they deserve. They may not get it all the way to death. You know, there are men who do many evil things in life and live a life of, of, of complete depravity and luxury. You know, I'm thinking of you know, sultans in the Middle East, let's say, whose lives never see any harm in the sense of, of God's judgment in the moment. But on the day they die, all of that is coming due. So you, you cannot look at that and say, they're never going to get their just desserts unless I give it to them now. No, you need to understand God's got your back. He'll take care of that. Chapter 4, we're going to move through this quickly. Verses 2 through 6 kind of form the next little section. He says, devote yourselves to prayer keeping alert in it and with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So as Paul wraps up the letter, and he knows he's coming to a conclusion, obviously, he begins to make mention of how the church should respond to the world at large. Now, this is an important transition. The, the church isn't saved for itself. He's spent the entire letter up to this point correcting and then teaching on what you do individually within the church, how you treat one another, how you view your own walk. Now he starts moving out of that conversation, starts talking about how do you treat the world? How do you move out from this self-focus that you've, that we've been in up to this point in the letter. So he begins to talk outwardly. He says, number one, be devoted to prayer. The word devoted here means ceaselessly active. Ceaselessly active. Be alert in it. Now some of you, are, if you're like me, prayer can often reach a point where you're starting to fall asleep while you pray. Now, let's be honest. If you do it late at night, you know, if you wait till the end of the day, or it's just your mind starts to wander, next thing you know you've been ta- thinking about something else for the last five minutes and you're, you're out of your prayer, Right? This phrase, be alert in it, for me, tends to hit me on that thought, right? But, but that's not what Paul's talking about. I mean, that's true. We ought, we ought to try to avoid those wandering moments, I guess. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking here about being alert in the sense of looking for needs. Paying attention to where you could engage in prayer. Looking at what goes on around you and being at all times alert to prayer opportunities. I had one man in a, in a men's kind of accountability group give me an example of what this would look like, and a great example. He said, for men who lust, who might seize a woman walk by and that triggers in them a lustful thought, he says, in that moment, make a disciplined choice that this is what you're going to do. In the moment you sense yourself in that mode of doing that thing, stop yourself and pray for that woman. You know, it's almost impossible to lust over someone you're praying for. It turns the thought 180 degrees. 
Pray for whatever she might, whatever need might come to mind. If you have no need, say, Lord, you know her needs. I lift her up to you right now. You know, pray in the moment. It stops the bad thought. It replaces it with the good thought. And who knows, maybe that was the time God had given you reason to notice her so that you could be in prayer over her. It's just a simple technique. But it's an example of what I think Paul's talking about here, which is be alert for prayer opportunity. Carry an attitude of thanksgiving, he says, into prayer. If we pray only when we need something or only when something's wrong in our life, it's real hard to bring an attitude of thankfulness into prayer. If you're praying as a ceaseless activity, alert at all times, you'll pray thankful prayers more often than you can possibly imagine. You, you, you drop the jar you just brought home from the grocery store and miraculously it doesn't break when it hits the floor. Pray a prayer of thanks. I mean, it can be two words. But the point is, that attitude brought in, it's not a mechanical thing, this is not some ritual. This is about a hard attitude that says, at all times I see God's work in my life, big and small, and I'm always looking for chances to praise and thank, thank Him. And if my mind is directed in that way, I'll find more opportunity than I know what to do with. That's what, and that's a ceaseless, alert type of prayer life. Rather than the one hour a day or half an hour a day I set aside and it's my special prayer moment. Those are good too, don't get me wrong. But if that's the extent of it, we really aren't living the life of a prayerful Christian. That's, that's just scratching the surface. He says, uh, remember him in your prayer. Remember his success in the gospel. I think clearly he's interested in them continuing to pray that he have opportunity. He asks then to the church to use wisdom to make the most of their opportunities. And he says the church's purpose as Christ's ambassador is to use those opportunities so that we might influence someone's thought about heaven and about faith and about Christ. And he says, to do this, let your speech be seasoned with grace. This is a powerful concept. This is worth 30 seconds at least. All right? He says, when you speak with unbelievers, speak with grace in your discussion. Now, this, this is two concepts mixed together. On the one hand, he's saying, speak graciously. Build up relationships. Make someone like you, if you want to think of it in real simple terms. Not in an insincere way. Not in a fake way. Just honestly, be nice enough that people actually want to build a relationship with you. Be open to that. And of course, through that relationship, you might have an opportunity then to speak of your faith and influence their life with respect to the knowledge of the Lord. Right? You, you build a relationship so that maybe through that relationship God could work. That's one sense of this. But there's another sense of this too. He's saying, season your speech with conversation about your faith. Be talking at times about the Lord did this, the Lord did that. Uh, I, thought, I prayed last night for this. I went to church over here. I studied this in the Bible last week. In other words, season your conversation with who you are. There's so often, I think, the case in our walk today, in the world we live today, it's very secularized, that we go out of our way not to say things that when we're with the brethren and the Lord, we're free to say. What Paul is saying is season your speech with that kind of grace, that kind of discussion of what your life is like now that you are in the Lord. Many will turn off to it, but once in a while you'll discover that person for whom God has already done a work to open their heart and your conversation ignites an interest in them and you don't know where that's going to go. But if you had shut down, never opened that door, who knows you know, what they would have thought and God will work in some other way, but you've lost that opportunity. Season your speech with grace. All right. For the last couple of minutes, Paul does some housekeeping here to kind of close the letter. I'm going to read the rest of the letter as a single passage and just highlight some of the names. Just some interesting facts about many of the names he's going to mention here. He says in verse 7, as to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. 
Aristocarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas, Barnabas, Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, also laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment, and grace be with you. What he's doing here with with this long list is continuing to build some credibility. This goes back to how he started the letter. You know, it's like anything else. When you're going for a job interview, what do you often look for? References that may know somebody in the company. Some insider, in other words. It's a chance to build credibility through a relationship. Paul's not doing this insincerely, but he's mentioning some of these names because he knows it will be well-received by the Colossians. It will give them some reason to trust what he said and to know that he's working with their best interests at heart. Looking at some of the names, Tychicus, we mentioned him at the beginning of the letter, if you were here on the first day. He was a beloved member of the Colossian church. He was one who had traveled with Paul to Rome from the Colossian church. Paul sent him with this letter. He also sent Onesimus with Tychicus. And remember we said the letters they were carrying as they took this trip were the letters to the Ephesians, a letter apparently to Laodicea, which we don't have anymore, and then the letter to the Colossian church. So these two men were the, were the ones who brought the letters. Aristocarchus was from Thessalonica. You find that out in Acts chapter 20. He administered with Paul first in Ephesus and then traveled with Paul to Rome. So he was a traveling partner of Rome. Paul says he's a fellow prisoner. That doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means because the word here in the Greek is kind of unusual. It's the only time it's used. And it literally means a prisoner of war. What was probably going on here is that it's a play on words. That Paul was a true prisoner of Caesar in a Roman prison at this point or in house arrest at this point. But Aristocarchus was a fellow prisoner in a spiritual battle in the war between Christ and the enemy. In that sense, he was a fellow prisoner, but probably not in house arrest. Uh, Barnabas and Mark are mentioned. This is fascinating. If you know Acts, you know the story of how these two men are cousins, Barnabas and and Mark. And Barnabas, Mark, and Paul traveled for a while early in, in Acts, if you remember the story. And then Mark had failed Paul at Pamphylia. Paul had wanted to go somewhere, at, uh, uh, and Mark had apparently deserted him. And so later, when Mark and Barnabas and Paul are all together again, ready to take another trip, Paul says, I'm not going to go with Mark. He, he let me down last time, I don't want to go with Mark. And Barnabas defended his cousin, said, no, let's, let's take him. They couldn't resolve it, so what happened? Paul went uh, with Silas, and Barnabas and Mark went. They, they divided over that disagreement. Now here they all are together again in Rome, which is a real encouragement when you think about it. It shows that you know, disappointments and disagreements will come along the way in ministry, but it doesn't have to be the last word that men in the Lord can reunite as they should. Jesus' justice, only time his name is ever mentioned. What's interesting about him is just how he's united there with Mark and Barnabas as the only Jews to accompany Paul to Rome. That's what he means by of the circumcision. These are the only Jewish men with him at this point. Probably Paul mentions this because he had said earlier in the letter, whether you're Jew or whether you're Greek, it's all the same. We work together. And that had been a contentious issue for the church because the church in Colossae had been taught about keeping some of the Jewish rules. 
Paul had said, don't worry about it. Now he mentions these names, I think, to emphasize the fact that there was a group working together that were both Jew and Greek. He mentions Epaphras. Remember why this letter was written? Because Epaphras left Colossae, went to Rome, and basically tattled on the Colossae church. He told Paul of all the things that were going wrong, and that's why Paul's writing the letter back to the church. And what does he do here? I think he tries to take Epaphras off the hook with this church because he says he's not meddling, he's concerned for you. I can testify to how much he's concerned for you and that therefore you should see this as a work of love. Then we hear Luke was there. This is also fascinating to me. You got Luke, you got Paul, you got Mark. Do you realize that between those three men all together in Rome at this one moment, you have men who wrote two Gospels, the book of Acts, and 13 letters in the New Testament. You have 60% of the New Testament written by these three men who are all working together in Rome. What a wonderful ministry team. Wouldn't you love to have that team wherever you go? Demas is there. We don't know much about him except that in 2 Timothy chapter 4 we hear that he later turned against Paul. So he's, this is when he was still doing well, apparently. Finally, he gives greetings, Laodicea, which apparently had a house church in the home of a lady called Nympha, probably a house church um, in that city. One interesting point. Do you know that until the 3rd century there were no church buildings at all? Churches always met in either public places or in homes. What's striking about that is, think about it this way, longer than the United States has been in existence, the church did just fine without a single building. No building campaigns, no building overhead. So what we ought to at least, and I'm not saying having a building is wrong for that reason, but I am saying that before we get too worried about that quality, that feature within a church, just remember that the church has never been the building. The church uh, doesn't begin with a building, doesn't necessarily need a building. It may be convenient. But if a church and the need, if a, if a church's need for a building drives ministry in that church, that may not be healthy. When we consider the building was never the point anyway. And then finally, Paul mentions a letter to Laodicea, reading each other's letters. This is how letters were distributed in that day. This was the teaching of the early church. We don't have that letter. Let me just suggest to you the reason we don't have it is it's not inspired. Which is to say that not everything that came out of Paul's mouth was the word of God. And those things God had purposed that Paul would write for the church to hear, for the, for the body of, of, of Christ to know of, for the Word of God to include, well, they're in the Word of God. But those things he wrote or said that were not to be in the Word of God are not. God obviously sovereign in that decision and, and in the ability to make it happen. So it's just a reminder of the fact that what Paul wrote that's in the Word of God is in there because it's special, because God set apart that Word and made it what he wanted it to be. But other things Paul said were just what Paul said. And apparently, the letter to the Laodiceans was one of those uninspired letters. Finally, Paul says he wrote it in his own hand. Let's just cut to the last line. What that means is this. Most, if not all, of his letters were dictated to somebody who wrote it for him. But when it came time to the very last line of the letter, Paul would take the pen, and he would write the last line of the letter in his own handwriting. It was his signature. It was his way of saying, this isn't someone pretending to be me. This is my hand. And we have to assume it was unique enough that if you had seen other letters from Paul you could always match that last line of writing and say, yeah, this is obviously Paul's letter. You remember when he, called, when he writes a letter to the church at Thessalonica? He says, do not be disturbed as if a letter from me has come to you because he's concerned they're hearing things from other people that propose to be from Paul, but they're not. So it was the case that in his day people were falsifying his letters. So he would take that last line, write it himself to verify that it was him. So how do you sum up the letter? We are all soldiers working together, serving the Lord the same, and we do it not because the church is a club, 
Not because it's a social activity, not because it's a pastime, but because we are the body of Christ, we are the ambassadors of Christ, we've been saved with an eternal purpose from the foundations of the earth, we've been called to a life that mirrors Him so as to be a good representative of Him, and there are eternal consequences for how we carry that out. And our knowledge and our dwelling in God's Word will be the lamp to our feet to, to achieve what He would have us achieve in our life where we depart from it we allow others who have false teaching to step in place of the Word of God and draw us off from that purpose God has set in front of us. That's the, the concern he had for the church. And I, I pray as we end today that what, what Paul has written gives us all something to think about in the way we conduct our lives in the church that we have here and in the walk he's given each of us in our lives. Uh, dear Father, convict us all as is appropriate by your Word, Father. Give us a heart to obey. Draw us closer to you through this knowledge. And Father, ultimately give us a heart of love, a loving heart, Father, that puts others before ourselves, a loving heart, Father, that desires to please you and not men, love, Father, that is not empty and vapid, love, Father, that is not based on false teaching and false premise and false desires, Father, love that is rooted in the truth of your word and is uh, pleasing to you. If that, Father, could be the outcome, then you've done so much more with this letter than we could ever hope to do in our own. We praise you, Father, for the time and for the chance to meet as a group through this letter. And uh, may you continue to bless this class and their future studies, Father, and I continue to grow them as you see fit. Give us a good holiday and bring us back safely when the time is right, Father. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.